Well, please turn with me to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, that should be on page 1021. And we're going to be considering this morning's 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And after you've made your way there, if you're able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. First John 2, verses 18 through 22, hear now the infallible, inerrant, life-giving word of God. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Well, for the last 2,000 years or so, uh, the Christian community has been on the hunt uh, for the so-called mythological creature known as the Antichrist. And I say mythological because many of the uh, suggestions or bold claims of who the Antichrist is have obviously not turned out to be true uh, because the hunt keeps going. And we think of the early days of the church where the phrase Antichrist uh, was predominantly understood to be perhaps an emperor from the Roman Empire. We think of claims like Nero or others who have uh, followed after him. Or maybe we transition into the time of the Reformation where the claim that the Antichrist was the Pope of Rome. And so you move from the military expression of Rome to the religious expression of Rome, and the uh, reformers were very uh, bold and very straightforward and saying that the Pope is the Antichrist. But then you move on further into human history. We come to the time of the great world wars, and virtually anybody that was leading a nation during that time was on the table to be the Antichrist and maybe a Antichrist. But so it continued, and then we get into our more modern era, and you have claims that, well, the Antichrist is going to be part of the United Nations. Well, no, the Antichrist is going to be against the United Nations. And then you hear even our latest uh, months that we've seen uh, when the Russia and Ukraine conflict began, there again is conversations about the Antichrist and people pulling prophecies from Daniel or pulling words from Jesus, and then it all starts again with the Israel and Hamas conflict all the while hunting and searching for this Antichrist in 
world history. Now, what I do not want to do this morning is say that all of that is irrelevant and all of that is not worth our time to even consider. But what I do want to say this morning is that in our passage, we're met with a fascinating categorization of the phrase antichrist and one that doesn't quite fit uh, with those elusive hunts that we have just rehearsed throughout human history. There's certainly a time and a place for those things, but what I hope to show you this morning is a very particular lens that the Apostle John wants us to use to understand the phrase and understand, most importantly, how it relates to Christians, how it relates to Jesus Christ himself. And so this morning, what we find in John's uh, introduction here to the idea of Antichrist, what we find is that John wants us to look at ourselves. John wants us to have a better understanding, a better working definition, not of what an Antichrist is, first and foremost, but what a Christian is. And we see that this morning, the big idea, the main point that John wants us to take away is that Christians are distinguished by who they are, what they have, and what they believe about Christ. Christians are distinguished, distinguished in this case from Antichrist. Christians are distinguished by who they are, what they have, and what they believe about Christ. And we'll use those three categories to work our way through the text this morning, beginning in verse 18. We first find here in 18 and 19, we're told that Christians are distinguished by who they are. Look at the very first word in this passage, children. Christians are children of God. Now, we've already introduced uh, this phrase to ourselves in our time in 1 John. This is not a new phrase, not a new label, but remember, if you rewind with me just a little bit, we remember how the word children is that broad umbrella term meant to describe all of those who have saving faith in Jesus Christ, who are born again, who have been regenerated, who belong to him and have this everlasting life. These are God's children. Now, there's certainly a, a variety of degrees within the church. Remember, John talked about how uh, among God's people, there are those who are fathers in the faith, there's those, those who are young men, uh, but all of those are God's children, whether you're a first generation or 10th generation Christian family, whether you uh, have been a Christian for one year or a hundred years, you are a child of God. And this is a very uh, important label in this passage because what we know about children is that they are vulnerable. To be a child is to be dependent, to rely upon your parent, in this case, your heavenly father, uh, to protect you. And now, what is it that the Heavenly Father needs to protect you from? Well, there's all kinds of things. Uh, we could think of the three famous categories, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We need to be protected from the external threats. We need to be protected from the uh, spiritual influence of the devil himself. But we also need to be protected from ourselves because we battle this flesh day in and day out. Well, for John... He wants these children, if you would call yourself a Christian, he wants you to know as a child of God uh, that there are dangers lurking. And in this case, there are dangers lurking during a certain 
environment, a certain spiritual environment, if you will, and that is the last hour. Children, it is the last hour. Now, this phrase is unique to John. You'll find the word last many places throughout the Bible. You'll find the word hour many places, but you won't find the phrase the last hour except here from John. Now, certainly, you're thinking in your mind of synonyms of this kind of phraseology in the Bible, and there are many. You might be thinking of the last days as the uh, author of the book of Hebrews introduces uh, the time of Christ as in these last days God has given us his son. He has spoken to us uh, from his son. Or the latter days, as many of the prophets speak of the times to come as the latter days. Uh, or even in the words of Jesus Christ himself, the last day. Well, here John doesn't speak of the last day, the latter days, or the last days, but he speaks of the last hour. So it seems like it's all building to a very concentrated moment. But the idea here is that John does not want us to think in terms of the final 60 minutes of the world. Uh, you've got one hour left. It's certainly not in a literal sense, but it's also not in the sense of uh, that Jesus is about to come back uh, in the day of John, because as we know, the last hour has been lasting for at least 2,000 years. And so how are we to understand this? Well, we're to understand it as, as a spiritual environment, the, the lay of the land, if you will. Uh, John says this is the last hour because in terms of prophecy, in terms of this long sequence of events, what we're waiting on is the return of Christ. We're not waiting on a 25-step plan of Jesus' return. We're waiting on his return. He could return at any moment. And because of that, you have the gathering of God's people in the gospel, but on the other side of the coin, you have the falling away, you have the animosity, you have the false gospel from the false teachers. And this, according to John, is the last hour, the last concerted effort, if you will, of the forces of evil as God's gospel prevails. And this is the last hour, the final showdown, if you will. This is what we are to expect. Now, that says nothing about uh, the over-under of Christians versus non-Christians or whatever your end-time view is, but it is the spiritual environment. For better or worse, it is the last hour. And John defines the last hour for us. We might be left thinking, well, if this is the only time the phrase is used, it sure would be nice to have a definition of what the last hour is. And as it turns out, John gives us one. He says that we know it is the last hour. And how is it that we know that? Because you have heard that Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrists have come. There's the definition of the last days. Hearing that the Antichrist is coming and experiencing firsthand that many Antichrists have come. They're here, in other words, is what John is saying. That's how we know it's the last hour. We, we may be met with a problem here uh, because we want to know what last hour means, and John gives the definition, and then we say, okay, great, but what does Antichrist mean? And then we have to work from another hunt for a definition. You might be surprised to know that for all of the fascination with the phrase Antichrist throughout the Bible, that John is the only one that ever uses the word. 
And this is, in fact, the first time that the word is introduced in the New Testament. Now, certainly, just as is the case with the phrase last hour, you could think of many synonyms like last days. So it is here uh, that we can think of all of the uh, synonyms for Antichrist that have been pr uh, promoted from different Christians throughout the history of the church. We might think of the Apostle John, or the Apostle Paul's mention of the man of sin. We might think of Jesus' own mention of false teachers that are going to arise, those who claim themselves to be Christ. Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, many will come saying, I am, having that, uh, that um, divine title attributed to themselves, I am he, I am the Christ. We might think of in the book of Revelation, the beast, the dragon, the false prophet, somewhat of an, of an anti-trinity, if you will. And there's all kinds of views that see all of those phrases pointing directly to this very specific antichrist arising in human history. And many end time systems have been built entirely around this. If you ask somebody what they believe about the end times, most likely they're going to say something about the word antichrist in their, in their system. But again, I want you to notice that what John does here is that he doesn't present to us most importantly, a specific, a singular, an external Antichrist with a capital A. What John presents, what John wants his audience to be concerned about, is not a specific, singular, external Antichrist with a capital A, but a broad, plural, internal threat of Antichrists. John wants them to know that many antichrists have come, and then he moves into verse 19 speaking more specifically about these antichrists. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So we think about antichrist, we're thinking about a political power, a military power, something out there somewhere, and John is saying, no, be concerned about the many antichrists that are right there with you, not from without, but from within. A fascinating way to present this phrase for the first time in the New Testament, uh, I might remind you of. And John says what is characteristic of these antichrists is that Unlike that call that we saw all throughout uh, the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2, the call for the Christian to abide, to remain, to hold fast, unlike that uh, description of the Christian, the Antichrist are not those who abide, who remain, but they are those who go out. The Christian is called to stay within. The Antichrist from within leave. They go out. They go their own way, and there's that uh, characteristic of them. They went out from us. These are the antichrists from within, the broad label that John uses to speak of those who have uh, left, who have uh, seceded from the Christian community there. Now, you might wonder, what would this look like? What kind of a person are we talking about? At the beginning of our time in 1 John, we talked about how this letter was most likely written to those in the Ephesian community. 
Maybe it was one church in Ephesus. Maybe it was a group of churches around Ephesus. And so it's fascinating to think about how the church in Ephesus was already warned about this. Now, you don't have to turn here, but let me read for us uh, just a couple verses from Acts chapter 20, where the Apostle Paul is instructing the Ephesian elders as he's getting ready to depart and go to Jerusalem. He says this to them, beginning in verse 29 of Acts 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. What Paul predicted had already come true uh, among the Ephesian Christians. These fierce wolves uh, would arise from within. They would leave the fold and they would try to take others with them by speaking and teaching perverse things. So here we have our working definition of Antichrist, what John means is false teachers. Teachers who look the part but turn out to be anti or against Christianity. They are, as we hear the common descriptor, wolves in sheep's clothing. And so it's fitting that when we think about Antichrist, the first thing that we should be thinking of is not some political power out there, some military power out there, but you should be dead set looking at the pulpit, the teaching among you. Not just me, but anyone who speaks the word of God, anyone who would teach the people of God. There is the place where false teaching comes from, and there is the place of Antichrist. We think of the bumper sticker. I don't know how many of you have, have seen, or maybe you have, uh, the bumper sticker. It's the acronym N-O-T-W. Uh, the T is normally in the shape of a cross, and it stands for not of this world. Uh, we think of the way that Christians understand themselves, uh, predominantly from the Lord's uh, teaching in the Upper Room Discourse in the Gospel of John. Uh, he's sending them out into the world, but they're not of the world. They're in the world. They're, they belong to him, though. They don't belong to the world. And so many Christians have bought uh, those uh, decals, maybe their shirts, maybe they put them on their vehicles, and it's N-O-T-W, not of this world. Uh, well, the, the thing that we have here is kind of an ironic reversal of that because in the case of the Antichrist, they really should have an N-O-T-C label, not of this church. Because they promote themselves, they come across as if they belong to the fold of God. Uh, they are teachers, they are parading as teachers, but ultimately they are false. They are anti the things of Christ. We could think of a lot of examples, and certainly you're probably not going to go outside and find anybody with an NOTC sticker uh, on, their, on their purse or on their car or something like that. But we can think of many examples, even in our modern culture, of pastors who get into trouble, uh, pastors who get found out. And in the midst of their being found out, they so-called leave the faith, uh, and they start to go their own way, and they start to promote all kinds of things that are contrary to the Word of God. We might think of many Christian artists who are uh, in this, it's still some kind of a trend to deconvert 
they get on social media and they, after having made millions of dollars singing about God, uh, they get on there and say, actually, I don't even believe in God. Uh, I'm not returning any of my money, uh, but I don't believe in God anymore. And in fact, I'm a victim in this whole thing because how could anyone believe in God? How could anyone believe in a God who loves in a world full of evil? And this kind of thing happens again and again. It's easy to just reach our hand in the big pile and, and pull out all kinds of examples. But you might want to look at more of a nuanced example. It's nuanced because it's not directly spelled out here, but it's explicit because when we think about it, we say, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. And what John wants us to have in mind here is the case of Judas. In fact, it's the same phrase used in the Upper Room Discourse, and he went out from them. There you have the choreography of Judas. Um, I've said this multiple times, so forgive me if you've already heard this, but when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, nobody turns to Judas and says, I bet it's him. Now, we do that because we've read it before and we know what happens. But Judas played the part very well. Judas was in charge of the finances. He had even worked miracles, as fascinating as that sounds. He had been among the disciples. He was, on paper, an apostle. He was a profound man, externally speaking. He looked the part, he spoke the part, he played the part, he acted the part, but he went out. Jesus says among the disciples, not all of you are clean, and he refers to Judas, and then there Judas leaves the fold, and what does he do? Well, he goes into the world. He does exactly the thing that we were warned of last time in our time together in 1 John, do not love the world. That's exactly what Judas did. Instead of loving the Lord who created the world, he went because he loved the world. He loved the things in the world, and he was destroyed by those things. He was the one that did not remain, but went out. And so it is with these antichrists that are the ones who go out. But it's a sobering consideration for us. Sobering because when we think about the case of Judas, nothing on the outside screams antichrist. And so it is with us. If we seek to build our resume on all the things on the outside, all the things that we say, all the things that we do, we can look and play the part of a Christian. But when it comes to the matter of the heart, an apostle on paper is still an antichrist in the heart. And so it is that a self-proclaiming Christian on paper could still be an antichrist in the heart. The Christians are different from antichrist because of who they are. They're children of God, but we're also reminded that Christians are different from antichrist because of what they have. And we see that in verses 20 and 21. What is it that they have? What is it that sets Christians apart from these antichrists? Well, it's that they have the spirit of truth and that they abide forever. You don't see those phrases necessarily in those verses, but you certainly see the idea. What is it that sets true Christians apart from false professors? Well, John says in verse 20, it's their anointing. 
We have to dig in a little bit to understand what does he mean by the anointing. But at this point, I want to press on the fact that what John does not do is present the situation, the environment, the characteristics of an antichrist, and then turn to Christians and say, but you're not like them because you've done all these things. John doesn't say you're a Christian and not an antichrist because you've done this, this, and this. You've checked off these boxes. You've satisfied these requirements. He does not say to them, but you have done. He says to them, but you have been. Something has been done for them and to them. This is what Christians have. You can hear the same phraseology in Ephesians 2 when John speaks of, or when Paul speaks of how we were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And he doesn't say, but now you've done all these things. He says, but God. Same idea here. False professors, antichrists, have built a substantial resume for themselves. They've done a lot of things. And they look to themselves. They rely on the flesh. But you are different, not because of what you've done, Christian, but because of what you have. More appropriately, what has been done to you and for you. And that is this. You have been anointed. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. We have to understand what this means. We think of anointing in the Old Testament. We have a plethora of examples of how the priests and the kings were both anointed with oil. It was to set them apart as one chosen by God and commissioned uh, to live their lives in a way that honored him, upholding his instruction, teaching the subsequent generation, standing as a representation of what God is like because his attributes are revealed in his law and they are to bring the world to him by the way in which they live and by what they believe. And they're set apart by being anointed with oil. But that anointing comes to its zenith in the New Testament, uh, where Jesus is anointed not with oil, but anointed with the Holy Spirit. You think of his baptism, where you have the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. You have the Holy Spirit ascending like a dove and resting upon him. The Apostle Peter in the book of Acts refers to that uh, occasion from the Gospels as Jesus being anointed by the Holy Spirit, set apart as one in whom God's affection, God's protection, God's care is communicated, represented in the person and life of Jesus Christ. He is the true anointed one, and here we are being reminded that we have been anointed by the same Holy Spirit. We're singing the Holy Spirit of Messiah. It's the same Holy Spirit that has been given to us. This is, as Jesus says in the Upper Room Discourse, the Spirit of Truth. Uh, this is He who has been given to us, the Holy Spirit Himself. And the Apostle John speaks here of this anointing as what sets us apart from the Antichrist. The Antichrist have gone out, but you are called to abide. And how is that the case? How will that be the case? Because you have been set apart. Because you have been anointed. 
Paul in the book of Ephesians and elsewhere speaks of this giving of the Holy Spirit as God's seal, God's protection placed upon us. It's like a down payment where you make the down payment so that you're demonstrating and you're making a gesture that you intend to bring the purchase all the way to fulfillment at the end. Because if you don't, then you forfeit your down payment. Well, God makes the down payment for us by giving us of his Holy Spirit. God will not deny himself. He will not deny the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So God gives us of the Spirit. He anoints us with the Spirit to seal us, to protect us. Here you have all the false professors going their own way, showing that they never belong to God. It's not a case of losing their salvation. It's a case of revealing that they never had it to begin with. Though they looked the part, they were like Judas at the end of the day who was never cleansed. But here, God's people are clean. They've been anointed. They've been preserved. They will be preserved all the way to the end. This is what the Apostle Paul refers to as that golden chain of salvation in Romans 8. Uh, God predestines, he elects us, he calls us, he justifies us, he brings us all the way to glory. And before he says that, he says to his audience that you have been given the spirit of adoption. This spirit of adoption that cries out, Abba, Father. And so it's very fitting that John begins this whole conversation by calling them children, calling you children. It signifies that you've been given the spirit of adoption. You've been anointed just as Jesus Christ has been anointed, that you, like him, the great and perfect son of God, can be a son and daughter of God and cry out to him as father. This is the spirit of adoption, and it's what sets us apart from these false professors. But it's not just that Christians have the spirit of truth and that they abide forever. It's also, in the second part of that verse, it's what sets Christians apart from false professors is their knowledge. Now, this is a strange argument that John just introduces here. We have to consider why does he say this. Uh, Most importantly, we have to deal with the matter of different English translations, because I know uh, some of you have a Bible like mine that says, and you all have knowledge. Some of your Bibles take it a step further and say, you know everything. Now, we know that Christians don't know everything because we opened up our time together this morning talking about how wrong we've been about identifying that mythical antichrist figure all throughout human history. And so what John does not have in mind here is that you know everything. All of you can open up Revelation chapter 20 and talk about the millennium and tell whoever what it means. Uh, We know there's disagreement. We know there's uh, varieties of knowledge. So why is it that he says, you all have knowledge or you know everything? Well, again, there's manuscript uh, discrepancy. Uh, Some will go with the idea that you all have knowledge, everyone has knowledge, or the idea that you all have all knowledge, you all have everything, but both of them get at the sense that John is trying to communicate to us. What does he mean that you know everything and you all have knowledge? The Apostle Peter says in the giving of the Holy Word of God, we have everything we need for life and godliness. 
you think about the opening chapter of the Westminster Confession that says not everything in the Bible is equally clear, but the things that are necessary for salvation, the things that are necessary for faith and life are given to us in the way that it doesn't require that we have a Ph.D., it doesn't even require that we need a GED. It's that they are communicated clearly and simply for us that we might attain to that knowledge. I think we could go another direction that gets at this even more explicitly. What Jesus says to the disciples when he promises them that the spirit of truth will be given to them, he says that the spirit of truth will guide you in all things, in all truth, in all knowledge. This is what sets them apart, not only that they've been anointed by the Holy Spirit, but that this Holy Spirit will be given to them because he will testify to the things that Jesus Christ has said. Now, if you have that, you have all things. You have all you need. You have who you need. And the reason that John wants them to understand this is because these who have gone away, these who have gone out, if you rewind with me back to the beginning of this letter, we talked about how these false teachers were promoting a secret knowledge. They were Gnostics. They were in pursuit of hidden things, the deep things of God. Uh, They were playing around with their pet philosophies. They were influenced by all of the other competing religions, and they were bringing all these things together, the things that the world celebrated at that time, all the things in the world, living however they wanted, acquiring whatever they wanted, they were packaging that in the name of Christianity and saying, here's the real knowledge that you need. Here's the real knowledge that you need to pursue. And what John is saying is, you don't need that. You have all things. You all have knowledge. Not one of you is without. Not one of you need go looking outside to these influential men who only seek to destroy you and bring you down in their own ruin. It's important, I think, for this third and final point that Christians would be reminded of what they already know. John says that Christians are set apart from Antichrist in what they have, and what they have is something that they already know. And he tells them that in verse 21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and no lie is of the truth. Now, this is very important because what we see John doing here is avoiding the false dichotomy of John's secret knowledge versus the secret knowledge of these false teachers. What John is not doing in this letter is saying, they're teaching you all the wrong hidden knowledge, so I'm writing this letter to you to give you the real knowledge, the real addendums to the faith. John doesn't do that. He disqualifies himself from that competition altogether and says, I'm not writing to you anything new. I'm not even telling you anything you don't already know. I'm just reminding you of what you already know, what is already yours. So this is an encouragement, I think, to Christians today because oftentimes we show up and we hear a passage that we've already studied before. We hear a sermon on a passage that we've already heard a sermon on before. And we think, I already know this. 
I'm going to go find a church that really pushes the limits and, and shows me the, the hidden things, the secret things. But if John in the first century wanted to remind Christians of what they already know, how much more do we need to be reminded because we do not have apostles as our lead pastors? Uh, we do not come from a lofty line of influential men such as the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John in the region of Ephesus. We need to be reminded of what we already know. Certainly we need to grow in our knowledge. But we must not arrive to worship and say, I've already heard this before. I sure wish my friend was here because they're the ones that need to hear it. No, you need to hear what you already know because that's what the Bible tells us. We need to hear what we already know. We need to cling to what we already know because that is what protects us from becoming like the ones who go out in search of new, innovative things. Christians are distinguished by who they are, by what they have, and by what they believe. And this is the way that John ends his letter. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Christians, to put it simply, are those who believe that Jesus is the Christ. That may sound very elementary, and it is. But this is something that could not be said about these false teachers. The problem with them, John says, regardless of all the innovative teaching, regardless of chasing down this category or that category, if you take all that they're saying and all that they're doing and reel it in and boil it down, what it amounts to is the fact that they deny that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. Here we have another definition. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So these Antichrists, they're like the devil, the father of lies, because they believe and promote lies. They're subtle like the devil. They don't go out and just say, I don't believe Jesus is the Christ. Remember, they're parading as Christians. But what John is saying is if you take the totality of what they're teaching, they can't believe that Jesus is the Christ because they're teaching things that are in opposition to that. Now, what were those things that they were teaching? Well, we'll get to this eventually, but simply look with me in chapter 4 uh, because here we have a more explicit detailing of what it was that they were teaching. How was it that they were denying that Jesus is the Christ? Well, you see it in the first three verses of chapter 4. Uh, you note that John says uh, for his audience to test the spirits because they need to be aware of false prophets. Uh, and then he gives us uh, a little bit of clarification that these antichrists that we're talking about are false prophets. They're false teachers. But what was it that they were denying? Well, they were denying by way of implication uh, that Jesus had not come in the flesh. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It's fascinating during this time of the year when we're celebrating the incarnation of Christ. That's exactly what these false teachers were denying. They were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. Now, we've talked about this variety of Gnosticism before, 
where it's likened to Star Wars, where it's like a force projection. It's like a ghost, like a hologram of a person. Uh, they look like a person, but you can put your arm right through them. They just appear to be a person, but they're not actually in the flesh. They're not real and raw. They just seem to be. And this was a unique way that Gnosticism was trying to preserve uh, the divinity of Jesus. It was far too um, disrespectful to say that he would put on human flesh because uh, that is just unfitting for a divine person. He needed to just look like he was a divine person, but not really in the flesh. And this is just one variety of Gnosticism, one variety of what these false teachers were promoting. And now rewind back with me to our passage. And John says uh, that the one who claims that is ultimately denying that Jesus is the Christ. Because if you get rid of the incarnation, you get rid of what it means for him to be the anointed one of God. You get rid of what it means that he came and lived. Most especially, it, get, it gets rid of what we mean when we say he died. If he only seemed to look like a human, then he did not actually die. It just appeared to be the case. And so you have no death or you have no atonement for sin. You certainly don't have a resurrection. And the whole thing comes crashing down when you cherry-pick the incarnation out of there. And at the end of the day, we're left with no gospel at all. At the end of the day, we're left with a teaching that denies that Jesus is the Christ. And that's exactly what John says. They deny that he is the Christ. They probably didn't say that, but that's what's implied. That's what's made even explicit by the system of teaching that they had. They denied that he was the Christ, and subsequently, they denied the Father and the Son. If you deny who Christ is, you deny the one who sent him. As Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. We have one plan of redemption here. I'm not doing my own thing while the Father's doing his own thing in heaven. The Father himself has sent me. The Father himself loves you. If you fail to believe in Christ, you also fail to believe in the Father. And certainly, if you reject Christ, if you reject the Father, you don't have the Holy Spirit. The very thing that John says sets these true believers apart from the false professors, the false teachers, the antichrists, is that they have been anointed. They have the Holy Spirit. And we're reminded of that beautiful picture of what John has already said to us, that we come to know the Father through the Son by the Spirit. The, Father comes to or the Son comes to testify about the Father, and he sends his Holy Spirit who testifies about the things that Christ himself taught and spoke. And so together we have this beautiful fellowship with all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what John is saying is, you take away the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you don't have the Father or the Son or the Spirit. You forfeited all of that. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And it's not just that Christians believe that Jesus is the Christ, it's that Christians love him as Christ. Christians cry out to the Father as Father. Think of the profound truth that we cry out to God as our Father, uh, that we have the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our elder brother who's gone before us, that we have the anointed 
And here's where I want to close our time together by reflecting on this grand truth. We have come to know the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. That's what we learned in verses 12 through 14. John said all the things that are true of us, all that we have. We, we have knowledge. We know him who is from the beginning. We have been protected from the evil one. And then you look at verses 15 through 17, and it's as if that's what is describing these false teachers. Do not love the world because that's what they do. Do not be overcome by the world because that's what has happened to them. They have been overcome by this world and they will, will perish with the world apart from God. It's fascinating that these antichrists are so-called. They're called anti because they're against the anointed one and they're also anti because they're without an anointing themselves. And Think of the wordplay that John uses here to, to close this passage. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Now, you know what Christ means? Anointed one. In this case, capital A, capital A, anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. Therefore, we are the anointed ones, lowercase a, all the while, the Antichrists are the anti-anointed ones. They're against the anointed and against all those who belong to Christ. And they're also without that anointing that sets us, us apart from them. So he's reminding us of the simple truth that Jesus himself taught, that if the world hates me, it will also hate you, because you belong to me and not the world. And therefore, do not love the world. Meanwhile... These false teachers in the name of becoming celebrities, in the name of acclamation, in the name of pleasing and satisfying the desires of their flesh, they have not gone out into the world in order to win the world. They've gone out into the world to be overcome by the world. It sets us apart, certainly, and it reminds us, even during this time of year, that something as simple as the incarnation is something far more simple than simply being somebody that enjoys Christmas time. The incarnation is just one aspect of the gospel message, but it's a crucial one because when we take it away, the whole thing comes tumbling down. We're reminded in our own age to pray for our local congregation, to pray for our surrounding congregations that we might hold fast to the faith that has once, once for all been delivered to us, and that we might not seek to improvise, that we might not seek to modify the message in order to make it more palatable to the world, that we might not make small little revisions in order to make it more substantial, because in the name of doing that, we destroy the message, and we are destroyed by the world. So John reminds us, Christians are different. Christians are different from the world. They're different from these false professors because of who we are. We're different from them because of what we have, and we're different from them because of what we believe about Christ. So, dear friends, dear Christian, let us hold fast to what we already know. Let us rejoice in what has been done for us. 
But let us look to Jesus Christ, truly man, truly God, who has come on our behalf that we might be children of God.